Hello, my name is Ashton Granger, and you're listening to the Map Report. It's a thing. It's a thing on the internet. It's made of internets, and it's made of internets, handcrafted organic internets, just for you. There are no preservatives, there are no GMOs, there's no adulterated ingredients, just pure internets for the life and the health of your computer, or your iPad, or your iPod, or your Zune, or your Sony Walkman. Look, whatever you have, it's good for it, all right? Let me tell you of an interview with an old man emu. He's got a beak and feathers and things, but the poor old feather ain't got no wings. Aren't you jealous of the wedge-tailed eagle? I'm better to da 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 da. Well, the eagle's flying round and round to keep my two feet firmly on the ground. Now I can't fly, but I'm telling you, I could run the pants of a kangaroo. But da he can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. Well, he was the model for the 50 cents. Um, better da 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 da. The designer should have had more sense. Um, better da 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 da. Take a look, it'll prove to you. I ran the pace of that kangaroo, but I don't do. Take a look, it'll prove to you. All right, in that case, welcome to TMR number 130. I actually just acronymed it. Oh my god. The MEP Report number 130. <laughs> You're in the TMR. metro park. You're caught. In the uh, Welcome, everybody. Hello. And uh, it is uh, November 13th, 2014. And um, I'm Greg. I'm here. And uh, story is story. And he's there. And Russ is Russ. And he's there. So I am here. He's he's there. Um, Altruisms. It's freezing. It is it's, New Orleans. And what is New Orleans be, freezing? There is a freeze warning. What is that? Are you guys in the polar vortex? Both in of New you? Orleans. <laughs> I guess so. We must be because someone told me this was like the tropics. There's supposed to be pirates around here or something. It's going to be 33 tonight or something insane. They're like moving all the homeless people indoors. It's crazy. All the homeless people moved here because it's tolerable <laughs> to live here in winter. And now they're like, I want more so acceptance good. for my exposed to the elements uh, city. You know, I want yeah. I want more of that to so, be there. I, I mean, so. So, like, it'll be a quick freeze, right? Because I mean, so like, the I... problem with New Orleans is that, and we actually even asked, you know, being having moved from New Jersey, being naturally cold human beings, Alex and I went around asking people at every apartment, "So is there heat?" And people laughed at us, and they're like, "You don't need heat in this city. There's heat naturally." And it was August, of course. They're like, "This isn't enough heat for you. You want to add to the heat?" And of course, now, I mean, I've never been so cold in my life in a building as today in New Orleans because it's not equipped. It's not ready. I would rather. Go to Helsinki where they're ready for the winter. Like December in Helsinki is probably much balmier than the one day it freezes in New Orleans. So that's, that's what it's life. like. It's, it's like uh, Atlanta has this problem. The problems are cities that don't have this normally. Mm-hmm. Seattle, even I've told this story before. Like they get one inch on the ground. I kid you not. And Seattle shuts down for like a week. Like the oh, yeah, blizzard like of Godzilla Godzilla nine showing like, up in town. Oh yeah. yeah, man. Like I went out when I went out there a few years ago and they had snow. People were talking about putting chains on tires. I'm like chains on tires i think my dad did that in 1978 really Otherwise we're still doing chains away. on tires yeah yeah like in oh my soviet god soviet russia chains tire you 
But you know, like, so that's the problem. Like all these cities, like I would, you'd almost rather live in a, in Minneapolis, right? Or someplace that's used yeah. to lots of snow. But if you get a place like that, where it's like, it never snows, like it just destroys them if they ever get anything, you know? I would rather live in Minneapolis. It was higher on our list, actually. So. Was it really? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. I, I love Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Have you ever been to Minneapolis? Yes, I have. City. Minneapolis is a nice city. I've been. I yeah. have some friends who live out there. Yeah, it's yeah. also the home of Fantasy Flight Games, which is uh, an awesome board game company. So there's that. What have Story, they done? Were you and I there at the same time? When pretty they much had, every uh, board game ever. Nationals there. Yeah, we've been over this. We were definitely yeah, yeah. in Minnesota Nats in 90, 1997 together. Yeah, I mean, obviously yeah. we didn't run into each other, but yeah, we were. We Did were contemporaneously the there. Um, in the Mall of America, the like no the, the oh, other one, the, the Valley Fair. How do I remember that? That's crazy. It's called <laughs> I, Valley Fair. Yeah, no, but we did go on the like Snoopy roller coaster in the Mall of America. Hmm. Um, oh, yeah, that's it was cool. there. It was the largest mall in the world at the time. I think it's been like passed we, by we fourteen places in Dubai. In the Mall of America, which is how many blonde women over six feet tall can you count? And <laughs> Wow, we got to like over 120 by the time that we were done. It was yeah, it's basically Scandinavia. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's Jeff. It's uh, our it's our friend. Uh, I'm gonna have to edit that out. It's our <laughs> it's our he mutual no friend um, who we know from Brandeis, um, who was from that area. Looks exactly the same. Tall, oh, blonde. You know. Does he um, not want to be mentioned? Why are we? Editing? Well, I was referring to his previous name that we had used. But you for just him. you said Jeff first. I know. Well, that's just that's, fine. that's fine. No, no, no. That's fine. As long as that name is not associated. It's never with connected nicknames. with something. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, as long as they don't associate it with his former nickname. Yeah, it's like you can talk about Bruce Wayne all day long, so long as the sentence doesn't. Right. If you're not like Batman. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You're getting it. But uh, no, I actually um, if it has. Uh, well, I went there for my first ever uh, conference as a professional author was uh, the Fantasy Matters uh, convention where I saw Neil Gaiman speak because he lives outside Minneapolis. Was there Urkel and, there? Uh, sorry. Was Urkel there? Uh, Urkel was not there. No, there, oh. was, there was no Urkel. <laughs> but it was. I, it was during a Vikings game too. So there are a lot of people wandering around with the jerseys, and um, yeah, it seemed like a cool city. And, and Fantasy Flight makes every board game practically ever. I mean, they're one of the largest board game makers How in the industry. How many bars? What would I know? Uh, let's see. Well, so the uh, Talisman, the new edition of Talisman. Um, let's see, Dungeon Quest. You would know uh, Battle Battlestar Galactica. You would know that they have a Battlestar okay. Galactica board game. I would know. That. Um, they have. Uh, they produced the Star Wars role playing game. So they did like oh, Edge okay. of Empire and a bunch of those. Um, they did. Uh, you wouldn't know Runebound or Descent. You might know Descent. Russ knows Descent because he's played it with me. Descent, yeah, um, I think I've the largest, it. most expensive game you'll ever buy. It's very true. That's they are no, well from, known for uh, making the so-called coffin boxes that are like so huge that you know the okay. heavier it is. Not unlike the, the he also made the Starcraft box that I wigged out about when Russ was at uh, Boing Boing and we were doing the the New York. Um, uh, was it New York Comic Con, Russ? It was. We that was the there? first Comic Con I'd ever been to. Was yeah, at the Javits Center. Yeah. So it's a good place. It's good people. Yeah, cool. Minneapolis, good stuff. Yeah. Although I hear it's bad in the summer, though, story, because of all the lakes, like the mosquitoes are nightmarish, I hear. Bad oh, yeah. humidity and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Garrison Keillor always said on his show, there's two kinds of mosquitoes in Minnesota, those small enough to get through screen doors and those big enough to open them. <laughs> That's really awesome. So, <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That's really scary. Um well, I, so I want to bring something up, uh, guys, because I just saw some more information about this and we haven't talked about it yet. You guys, I'm going to assume, have been following hashtag Gamergate. You know what's going on with the I Gamergate mean, stuff? I've, I've as heard minimally of it, as possible. Okay. But, and Blizzard responded to it in some official keynote speech. 
But yes. I don't know what, I don't know anything else. Ah, let me sum up for you gentlemen who will have clearly opinions about this. So, uh, very quickly, the way Gamergate started was um, there was a uh, game developer who wrote a game called Depression Quest, which I have not played, whose name is Zoe Quinn. And um, her ex-boyfriend published this very long, very detailed outing of Zoe Quinn as a dishonest person who had dumped him and why she had dumped him. Um, It was sort of long and wandering and meandering and all that stuff. But one of the things that came out in that story was the fact that she had supposedly slept with a journalist. I want to say it was a Kotaku. I don't know if that's true, but it was a games journalist who then proceeded to review her game positively. Now, what came out later on is that he actually had not written a review of that game and, in fact, had only mentioned her once in passing um, and I think might even have been before they were actually dating. But in any case, like be that as it may. So that began this long uh, sort of a uh, kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It somehow got the ball rolling in only the internet can, you know, only the way that the internet can. And people started to look at um, what they saw as being journalistic integrity. And so this hashtag Gamergate uh, was created and none other than um, Baldwin, Adam Baldwin, not Alec Baldwin, but Adam Baldwin, formerly of uh, Firefly. Um, he's like the sixth Baldwin brother. Something like that, yeah. Is so he, he actually a up, Baldwin brother or is that just I don't know me? if he's actually a Baldwin no. brother or if he's just, I don't think so. <laughs> think oh, okay. <laughs> that would be the widest family ever. Like you have Alec Baldwin who's like as left as you can get and then you got um so anyway so this guy adam baldwin is a pretty well-known conservative and he i think he either coined the term gamergate or supported it strongly and retweeted it and um the problem was that while gamergate claimed that it was about journalistic ethics and integrity gamergate also was spending a lot of its time going after female game journalists that it was annoyed at notably people like anita sarkeesian who has done this series of youtube videos sort of can i ask something that i've been really wondering about gamergate for a long time i'm sorry to interrupt but that's fine they chose this name for themselves, right? Well, I'm not. I don't remember if they chose it or if Adam Baldwin like because created the reference it, is Watergate, right? right it exactly. is a gate like scandal. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's or, their point. That but it's like, a there's scandal. all these people who are like, "Yay, Gamergate!" and they're all gamers. So it's no, no, like no, if, it's... if Nixon were like hashtag Watergate, like look in <laughs> right. the files. Well, no, it's a scandal, but what, the, what it is, is it they're referring to the scandal of the fact that gamers are getting screwed over by journalists who are not being ethical because they are, you know, attacking gamers and they have an agenda, basically. They're not doing okay. it out of good faith. So hence the reference to Watergate. I think also, I think PR manager. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Well, that's part of the, it's one of the big problems of this group. Okay. So, you know, people like Anita Sarkeesian and there were others, Brianna Wu and people like that, um, who have produced things that have been critical of the, you know, rather sexist bent that many in the video games industry have had and many games have sort of been connected to. And uh, so um, they then got the Gamergate folks using the hashtag Gamergate um, basically got on them. And a lot of this was pushed, incidentally, by 4chan, which will come as a surprise to absolutely no one um, that was pushing it. And so then we started to get the death threats. And the if you uh, the doxing, you guys probably know what that is, but for people who don't, basically putting out people's addresses and phone numbers and email addresses and personal things on the web. Um, so this happened with Anita Sarkeesian. It happened with Felicia Day. It happened with a bunch of other people. Um, and uh, it got nastier and nastier and nastier to the point where Anita Sarkeesian was supposed to be delivering a speech at the University of Utah, I believe, and ended up having to cancel it um, because of uh, bomb threats that had been yeah, made. That- that to I did hear about. University of Utah, yes. 
And so uh, the reason I bring it up is that I just got an email in my box today from one of the organizations that I follow called the ECA, which is the Electronics Consumer Organization, um, that uh, has that had an article about the person that apparently was the one sending the death threats to Anita Sarkeesian, who was turned in by two Gamergate supporters. So they did the hashtag Gamergate and they found him and sent it over to this guy who writes for Kotaku um, and did so because they said this is a person, you know, we, we want this person stopped and we sort of, you know, disavow ourselves. And so, yeah, but they've discovered this guy, um, supposedly, who lives in Brazil um, and posts and writes for websites, apparently, and is the one who's been behind, allegedly, um, the death threats themselves. And so I bring all of this up because it strikes me that this is... I mean, this is, you know, we got involved with podcasting and doing this stuff before any of these things really happened. And I, I there's even an old MEP report in which I think I say something like, what is this Twitter business anyway? Why would Twitter ever be, you know? So obviously we were sort of in the midst of the revolution, as it were. But I'm curious what we all think about this, because I guess my biggest question is, do we hold individual members of a movement? Do we hold the movement responsible for those individual members, to what degree do we do it? Because quite obviously, you know, frankly, the moment that your organization is in a serious way associated with death threats, the conversation ends. Like, there's no other... Th- well, this kind of reminds so. me a little bit of the newest episode of Sorkin's The Newsroom on HBO, yeah. okay. in which they cover the uh, the Boston Marathon bombings. And Sorkin made a point to really criticize uh, internet journalists and citizen media because of the mob mentality that arose around trying to find the suspect before the information was officially released by the FBI. Mm-hmm. So this is like the, the witch hunt for uh, Sunil Tripathi, who they thought was originally like the suspect, and how people would send death threats to his sister because he had been missing for however many years. and. Um, and they, they make a real point of saying, like, the, the, the FBI and the police force were the only ones who didn't mess up, whereas all of the important information was being divulged by Internet people, and they were causing harm to the investigation in all these different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I thought was a fine, I guess, valid criticism. I mean, I'm still very much in favor of citizen journalism and think that ultimately, as we've discussed many, many times on this podcast, how we feel like, you know, there's a a huge potential for corruption among the mainstream media. And frankly, like it, it seems to be like in the normal course of duty as a journalist, you kind of have to be in bed with the people that you're covering and you get sucked up into the world of whether it be, you know, banking and finance and the, the finery associated with that world right. or politics. Like you end up ultimately being corrupted just in building the relationships with the people that you're reporting on. And rather than being an outsider, which is what some people believe, journalists have to be to be able to function right but i guess what i'm wondering about though is that i am wondering whether it's almost getting off the point for them to be talking about ethics and journalism when what it really seems to be is a lot of people bitching about the fact that you know some critics are beginning to question why it is that for example ubisoft is incapable of having a female main character in a brand new assassin's creed game because quote it would be too complicated to animate like, I mean, what is that? I don't understand what that has to do with the rest of the story. Well, that's exactly the point. 
neither do I. Like the argument, the, the problem is that the Gamergate people, a lot of this has basically come under the guise of this strongly anti-feminist, um, you know, attack on those who would question the sort of good old boy network in the game side. And they cover it under this veneer of that's because journalists are unethical and, you know, they're only giving voice to the fem- you know, the women who are objecting to it and they're not being fair. You see what I'm saying? So I mean, I don't I don't get the criticism about the, the female avatar because I mean, men stereotypically like play female avatars because, quote, I like to watch her ass run on the screen while I'm playing the game. Like, they they like female avatars and has nothing to do with fe- any kind of feminist perspective. Well, but I think part of the problem that exists with that is that, um, and actually, you know, Lara Croft in Tomb Raider was changed around in the new game to sort of reflect <laughs> reality as opposed to the way Lara Croft used to look. And part of what was going on here was the fact that the sort of main character of an Assassin's Creed game would clearly not be about, uh, I don't know, sexy times, right? Like it would be, it, it would not have that same kind of appeal because they, you know, wearing a cloak and, you know, like what the Assassin's Creed type, you know, folks would wear. Oh, I'm sure she's um, naked, virtually naked. Under the <laughs> virtually cloak. naked underneath. I think it's a hard case to make that you should take away sexy female stereotypes from gamers who are just basic hedonistic pleasure seekers. Like, and I count <laughs> myself, you know, as one of them for a very long time. <laughs> like, so it's like, a lost cause, you're saying? I don't want your political correctness to come anywhere near like the the boob size of the avatar in my Final Fantasy game. Like, I just want it to be like pure, uh, you know pure hedonism and a pure serotonin plug from my brain and that's all I want and if you you're trying to make it less fun because there's some you know stereotypes involved then yeah I would oppose that as a Whereas from, what from I get out of this story of is like I really want to play Depression Quest. That's how <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've actually story. heard that it's not very good, but I don't. I don't know that directly. I haven't played it. Um, I think the biochemical you were looking for, Russ, by the way, was testosterone more than serotonin. I'm, I'm guessing that was more. No, I just want the brain. pleasure. The pleasure drug released. You just in want my brain. the pleasure drug. Yeah. Just, but I mean, it can you just know, give you an IV drip for that, probably. Right. Seriously, they're I mean, close. To get that. addicted. They've got to be close. Video games are way more interactive. But I mean, is that I mean, I guess the point is, is that stuff going to go away? Because the argument is, can we actually have a female character? Like, again, I think that's the problem, right? Is that a lot of the gamer gay people are like, this is again, they would claim it's about ethics and journalism. But again, what they're really complaining about is this other issue. And to me, that other issue seems to be not an issue they should be concerned with. Like the argument is not let us get rid of male protagonists, let us get rid of or let us get rid of female protagonists that are represented in a sexy way it's that why is every protagonist going to be represented this way why do we have almost every female protagonist being represented this way and yes there are independent games that don't do that and there are games that sort of approach uh female characters differently but a large number of at least the triple a titles still aren't doing that and you know you have to start asking well why is that and what are sort of the impacts of that overall this is mostly me playing devil's advocate because i think there are arguments to be made on both sides but in any case, it's sort of hard even to get there, by the way, when we're still dealing with death threats first. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's kind of the biggest so problem. To begin I, with. I think the closest thing that I can think of to, to what you're trying to get at is, like, one of the reasons that the protest movement since the Vietnam War, you know, I mean... <clears throat> And and this sounds like it's off topic, but I'll 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 circle back around. <laughs> you can do it. So <laughs> bring it so home. The 
the protest movement since the Vietnam War, which like, you know, it won. And that's why conservatives, right wingers and warmongers went home, lick their wounds and figure out how to get better. And protesters didn't because they had won and they had just assumed they would always win in the future, right. which is why we have this mess of a country now. But so people try to organize protests these days. And what happens is because they're sort of open and inclusive, generally, the movement is like a big tent and you get all of these people together. And very quickly, you end up having like anarchists and, you know, just like crazy environmentalists who care about nothing else and crazy right. pacifists like me who care about right. nothing else and like crazy Democrats who are like all about the moderate middle of the road. And it's like, oh, yeah, we'll protest the war. Just don't criticize Obama. And like all of these people under the same big tent. Um, and it's usually the anarchists who screw things up for people, you know, like the rest of the tents, like you can sort of work it out and you have Occupy Wall Street, like having their seven hour meetings to try to build consensus around this. But, but then you shockingly, have the anarchists do not want to listen to people right, who tell but, them to pay attention. Exactly. <laughs> but then you have the anarchists who put bricks through the windows, right? It's like the WTO protests in, or Occupy in Seattle, Oakland, which right? like Didn't happen in 96% of people are fine. Yeah. And then somebody is like, this is about anarchy, right? I've got my brick. And it's like, yep. why you got to yep. be that guy? So I have no idea. I mean, from what I've heard generally, Gamergate sounds like it's a bunch of people that I disagree with. Like, and the like, there's one sane person who is the equivalent of the anarchist in the story who's like, <laughs> actually, let's listen to the women. No, get out. You know, so <laughs> right. it sounds like it's inverted in this situation. But I think your larger question about like, what do you do with the death threats? It's like, it really only takes one guy to bring a brick or to make a death threat. And, like, at that point, that is going to grab the headlines and the attentions in that situation. And, you know, arguably in half these protest movements, I mean, most of the people with the bricks are probably FBI agents. Like, no joke. <laughs> um, no, I mean, they've documented no, I believe this in a lot of situations where the FBI and the CIA is trying to infiltrate these movements to keep an eye on them. And they often tend to be the agitators because they're all that the FBI cares about is framing terrorism right now and usually inciting it. There's, this is all over the media. But so, you know, like, obviously, you can't hold the entire movement responsible for that in that situation, but it's going to grab the headlines and going to grab the attention and derail it. That said, I don't know if Gamergate is like I think Gamergate is more the people with bricks to begin with than vice versa. But. Yeah, and there's so many bricks and so many people in this case. And I to mean, play uh, devil's prosecutor for a moment, yeah. um, I think that I would argue that having sexy female avatars could be a good thing because <laughs> as a guy who has played a female avatar in World of Warcraft, I absolutely know the experience of, you know, the, the YouTube video that exists <laughs> of like a woman walking yep. around New York yep. City for 10 hours being harassed and they just get all the highlights of that. Like, I know exactly what that's like. It's like, wow, people are inviting me into groups a lot and they're just giving me free stuff. And this is strange. That I'm actually happened in that video, by the way. She was invited into raid groups on New York City streets. And just <laughs> yeah. just Come on, you want to go rape? We're going to take out guy. Anixia. Can you take out Anixia? Come on. Oh, Hilarious. So, hey. No, that's actually really interesting that it's a, like it's an it's an avenue toward compassion of like it understanding. Is. The problem is given the social standing of most of these people who are actually involved in this, they just are grateful for that experience. It's like someone <laughs> actually wanted to say hi to me, which I know bullying isn't like something that we are supposed to be making fun of in this day and age because we're not supposed to make fun of anything. But that is probably the experience most of those people had. I mean, but I think the question, too, is, uh, I guess on the one hand, is it creating compassion? 
maybe, but I would argue that you're not, you know, you're not the average bear, Russ, when it comes to someone playing this. I mean, most of the time, if someone is getting that kind of attention and interest, um, I'm not sure that it teaches them like, ah, this is what it is like to be the female in society. It's more like, ah, this is the way women are generally treated, and then go out and do the same thing to women when they're not playing their own female avatars and characters, right? I mean, it's teaching them, it's sort of normalizing the experience. The experience is, I, you know, women are mocked, and women are, or and when they're not mocked, women are, you know, sort of propositioned all the time, and people get really upset when the woman who's being propositioned doesn't really want to be propositioned and would appreciate it if you just, you know, treat her like a human being and a normal person and not act like a, you know, Neanderthal. Um, and, and they don't they don't sort of take that, you know, next step to say, ah, it's about empathy. They just take it to say, well, see, this is the way women should be treated. And I've had that experience because I played those kind of characters, you know. Yeah, I, I lived as a woman for two hours on my PC and I could take it. So. <laughs> exactly. I can handle really, it. It's no big deal. But I mean, because you think it would be sort of empathy would be the result. And yet it seems to me that a lot of times it's almost sort of like normalization ultimately is the result. And I let me just say, too, I'm not a fan of all of Anita Sarkeesian's work. I think she tends to... She's a little bit of a she cl- she tries to get a lot of clicks on her videos. I mean, she has a tendency to sort unlike of, everyone else on the internet. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's fine. She wants clicks. She wants clicks, but do hey, do not subscribe to the Mep Report. Do not go to MepReport.com. Do not follow us. But we but we have never Twitter. claimed. But we have never claimed. Oh no, don't ever click on us. Don't follow our work. We've never claimed that that's Perhaps not what we, we should, also want. That to do. might be a successful. You think so? We should be like, all right, people, don't follow us. Okay, <laughs> don't follow us. Don't, don't follow us. You don't want to know where we're going. Yeah, the right. newest thing on the the Bitcoin subreddit <laughs> on Reddit because people were accusing posters of just posting things in the hopes they would get Bitcoin tips is that people will now post a thing and then immediately say, please don't tip me. And then, of course, they're assailed by Bitcoin tips for being so polite at like not asking for tips. <laughs> so now the opposite is the case. So now the only way to do it is going to be to go back to normal is to ask for being tipped. And that way people will be like, I'm not going to tip you. That's the only way to actually avoid being tipped is to now ask for tips. Right. And. Uh, let me uh, make a sort of sidestep here to the whole the nice guy paradigm, which yes. was um, – I think it mainly came to the forefront after the, the UCSB serial killer guy wrote his manifesto about right. how no women loved him and so then everyone in his community deserved to die or something like that. <laughs> like, right. And so part of the paradigm is that as a nice guy – you're nice to women, and so you expect to get rewarded by being nice to them, and and ultimately you deserve to be rewarded by them for for your presence on this earth. Um, and I've always struggled with this because as a as a nice guy, like I my point of view was just I understand that women get harassed all the time, so why would I want to pile onto that and just be like in in public situations where I might want to approach a woman, like, why would I go talk to this woman when I know that her whole day before YouTube even existed is full of being harassed and being bothered by assholes? Like, why would I associate with those guys by talking to her? But then the paradox is, well, because you're, you know, more likely to understand and empathize with her plight than the guys who typically talk to her. So you have to talk to her. So you have to become one of them. And then she well, goes on and on. Like well, that. no, because it's, no, well, but wait a minute, though. It's also the approach vector, right? I mean, it's also the fact that you don't go up to her with like, hey, baby, the, you know, I mean, like you don't you don't start out the way that they start out. I mean, if you look at the YouTube video, it's not like someone like there's one of the examples is a guy who says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the guys is a guy who says like, oh, you know, uh, you look nice today or something like that. And then she doesn't say anything. And he's just like, I said, you look nice today. And then he gets really upset and angry. Like, 
that's not the way it works. You know, like if I'm walking along and I pass someone, I have a tendency to often, you know, smile or nod. And I've never had anyone be like, what are you trying to do? You know what I mean? But what I don't do is smile at an attractive woman and then turn around and follow her smiling continually as I stare at her creepily. Right. And like that's that's because I'm not a harasser. And that's the same thing with you, Russ. Like, you're not going to actually go (laughs) up to them and start the conversation the same way all of these other guys do. Okay, yes. However, if you look at women who live in large cities as, like, mild sufferers of PTSD, which I don't think is that far from the truth. No, I agree with you. um, Then any interaction with them at all, as innocuous as it may seem to you, may to them be just yet another case of them being harassed or approached on the street. Like, if you're number 107... Even if you're relatively nice, in the mind of a PTSD person, you might be piling on. You know what I mean? Well, so maybe random street approaches are not going to work out. You know, but maybe this may be why I've never approached a woman like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, like that's right. I mean, like the people that you know that I've that I met and dated, and then eventually the woman I married were all people that I met in the debate context, and the, you know there was sort of there was a context like we interacted and were friends and all that. So, I mean, I don't have much of the experience. You, Russ, have much more of the, um, you know, broad, wide world of uh, crazy internet dating. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, like, I still, it, it seems to me that, I, I guess it's a matter of just having a normal conversation with someone first, and then things just start working in a certain direction. Like, I, I think the problem is, because I think you said it first, like, the idea of guys feeling like they should be rewarded for being nice is a problem to begin with, right? Like, mm-hmm. Why? You know, like it's not a it's not you're not doing it presumably for a reward. You're doing it because you're a nice person. The problem is when the desperate nice guy, when the I need someone right now nice guy comes across, he's not really interacting with that person because he wants to be nice. He's interacting because he wants to be rewarded and he wants to be rewarded in a specific way. Let's be real. So, well, you could also just say, let's be real. All of the actions that we ever take in our lives are all for some reward, even if it's like the fake. Yeah, but that's. I know. I'm I'm, wait. I'm just goading story. Give me a second. (laughs) I'm (laughs) utilizing what we used to call at the group home I used to work at. Planned ignoring, which means I deliberately am aware that I'm being baited and I'm not getting dragged. Do not, do not, do I not. Mean, even, for instance, the altruistic sense, which, of course, we know is really a selfish reaction to being doing good for other people, as Ayn Rand famously <laughs> Okay, now, now you're not believing it. You've crossed the Rand line. You've crossed the Rand line. All so right, I know that you're not even. It's like from devil's advocacy to just like... Like total, like nefarious self-destruction. <laughs> like all right, Let me play Hitler's advocate. I don't, I don't even have right exactly. I For those of you have... new to uh, the uh, MEP report, Russ loves objectivism and Anne Rand, and he believes Atlas Shrugged should be on everyone's bookshelf. This is totally Russ's belief structure. Oh yeah, there you go. I just want you to know. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> so I mean, it, it's that's yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, because like, it seems to me that like a lot of the sort of the so-called objections that people have in the nice guy stuff and everything else. I read a really interesting article about it, actually, that uh, an opinion column, I should say, that was written by a guy who um, I guess he was a guy. I, I don't I don't watch the show. So there was this champion of Jeopardy fairly recently who apparently broke a lot of rules in the way that he played it. And apparently it ticked off Alex Trebek. I don't know if you guys saw this or know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think um, he was an Asian guy, maybe a Korean guy. Yes, uh, that's right. Exactly. And and apparently he like irritated Trebek or something like that. Anyway, so he came on and talked about, um, uh, he actually wrote an article about understanding what it was that people were feeling and rejecting completely their approach. 
So basically being like, you know, he's been in the position of being attacked. He'd been in the position of, of feeling like he was ignored and wasn't given the time of day. And, you know, he was a nerd and blah, 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 blah. And actually, he talks about how it was Felicia Day who, because of a variety of events, ended up sort of being incredibly nice and kind to him. And so when the thing came out that she was doxxed, he was really angry and he wrote this whole article about how he understood where people were coming from. But you just you can't you can't get to that point. You just can't get there ever. And like conversation has to stop when that point has been reached. And we have to remove sort of the threat, at which point the conversation maybe could sort of continue. But it was really interesting because he was basically talking about the idea that this sort of sense of entitlement. And I count myself among these sort of the nice guys who used to get really pissed off at, you know, the jackasses who treated, you know, girls that I liked badly and used to be frustrated. Well, why don't they like me? Because I'm a nice guy and I would never do that to them. But in a way, that's also a sense of entitlement that the bad guy shares. It's just that we're not being nasty and cruel and we would never be abusive. But it's the same kind of entitlement underpinning it, isn't it? I mean, it's the same kind of, you know, we deserve something. I mean, no one wants to be alone. Let's be reasonable. Of course. Like, like no one wants to feel like they are the only person who does not have romantic attraction. So I don't don't think – I mean – I've always had a little bit of an issue with the way that this is portrayed because certainly, like, there are examples of these people who are seeing it as a sense of entitlement. But I think that there's also a lot of people who are simply like, there are 7 billion people on the planet. It appears to me that 6.9 billion of them are in a successful relationship or at least, like, (laughs) able to craft some sort of companionship with somebody. And I am the exception. And I think that, like, that is the storyline that is missing from a lot of this analysis of, like, how dare they expect to not die alone in a cave? Like, well, you know. (laughs) But I don't think that's the expectation. I've I've seen things like that that, like, I don't think... And look, I am not saying that a lot of these people who fit into this sort of like nice guy meme are necessarily like being respectful. And I think your observation about desperation is true. But I also think that a lot of these people are like desperately chronically alone for reasons that are not necessarily entirely their fault or things that they can Oh, no, no, I agree with you entirely about that. And that our society has no room for just being like, hey, what do we do with lonely people? Like, you know. Right. Or or for giving them sort of any aid or comfort or anything in that situation. And that is not to say that, like, therefore a woman is obliged to, like, date someone they're not attracted to. Like, obviously you can be as picky as you like about whoever you want to date. But I think that it's a little bit more understandable and reasonable than some of these perspectives give them of, like, you have a sense of entitlement that you shall feel warmth and love. What? How dare you? No, well, all right. I mean, know. that's fair, but I, I, I totally agree with you about that our society doesn't do nearly enough to sort of build connections between people I mean I, I and among right. people I think that's a huge problem um, and it's one of the things that I like about twitch frankly is is that I think twitch is doing that albeit imperfectly um, Ooh, but it tries to depression do stuff like quest that. on twitch that yeah no I thought yeah, about it I thought totally about it that. I thought Sorry. about it go on yeah. Um, yeah I thought about it um, I actually read a really interesting critique that was really angry at the way that depression quest portrayed what depression was like anyway I have to check it out before I can make any decisions but um, but I, you know I totally agree with you on that point I guess my argument, though, would be that the sort of end of what you're suggesting, which is that, you know, it's really terrible to say to somebody you're entitled because you don't want to die in a cave alone is not what's being said. It is you're entitled because you think that women, you know, that if you're nice to someone, the woman's responsibility is to turn around and be not only nice to you, but to be kind to you and essentially sleep with you, which is which is basically what a lot of it comes down to. For I some just of these I think that that's the portrayal. And I think that's a stereotype. And I think that that is occasionally 
occasionally true. But I don't think that a lot of these people are feeling so. I I don't think that a lot of people are responding individually in that way. I think they are responding collectively in that way. So That's interesting. I think that it's not so that portrayal is this idea of like you you know person has this re, this interaction with one woman, they have this transaction, they're really nice to them or in some cases which happens a lot of the time, you know, they befriend them and are like their best friend who is unthinkable as someone in a relationship for like months on end or whatever else and you know and they continue to sort of pine in that situation. But I think that much more frequently the situation is they have interactions with tens or hundreds of people and feel collectively rejected and that it's not the expectation of like this one woman has to sleep with me because I was nice to them once. I think that's the parody. And and it, it certainly happens occasionally. I think it's much more often by the time they're rejected for the 278th time. And there could be a good reason for it. They could be really ugly. They could have really bad breath, like whatever it is, like there could be val- there there can be totally valid reasons for it. But the experience of being rejected for three hundred times when you're in an environment like a high school or a college where literally it seems like everyone is constantly getting it on always. Right, right. You know, that becomes a situation where collectively, like, am I that heinous? Am I that hideous that I am the only exception to this? No, I'm with you on that. They're not the only exception, but they're made to feel that way because of how our social environments are constructed. And I think that that is a much more understandable frustration to have, especially if you feel like you are vastly nicer or vastly more appropriate or polite to people than 95% of the other people. And and frankly, those people probably are, you know, you but there may be, be some... useless to society and socially <laughs> right. alone and not Jeez. procreate according to the rules of social Darwinism. Right, yeah, that's, oh, that's yeah. what, what? Right, and and we don't do anything <laughs> to mitigate that or to, or to coach those people of how to bring themselves along in a perspective of, you know, doing this. And saying you're just an entitled whiny bastard, get out, is also not... <laughs> the prescription. Well, right. Oh, and yeah. I- Why don't you ask Obama to set up a <laughs> relationship welfare for these people? Huh? <laughs> exactly. You damn lefty liberal. You know, Nine it's man, two thousand. Listen, I know. Jeez, God. <laughs> Guberman shrugged. Um, I, I, but I mean, I think okay. I, I, I am. I totally am in agreement with just about all of that. I, I think you're okay. absolutely right that society has done a horrific job, and part of the problem may simply be that we have done such a bad job at providing a sort of larger a larger nurturing community you know i think there are individual communities that are very nurturing but i think there is not nearly enough Mothers of a sort mostly. of say again Mothers mostly. Yeah, right. That's about it. That's about it. <laughs> That's like about I mean, where as far the, you know, like larger nurturing communities of people that can really be supportive and be helpful. And you know, obviously, I mean, we've talked about this. I think all three of us sort of fell into the nice guy. What's you know, why am I? Why am I sort of getting passed over paradigm at some point in our lives or another? I think that's happened to a lot of people. And in my case, a lot of that really didn't sort of clear up until well, for two reasons. Number one, because I had a I was a unit. I'm a Unitarian Universalist, as you guys know, and I had a youth group. That was incredibly, incredibly important to me. Like, I don't know how I would have survived high school without it, to be honest, because there was that nurturing going on in that group. And then the second thing was when I got into college, 
um, things changed almost 180 degrees because I was more in charge of what I was doing because I felt more comfortable and more confident um, because I felt more sort of, you know, managing my own situation. And then obviously debate my senior year of college sort of locked that in. And all of a sudden I was really with a community of people that respected me for who I was and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, but I had enough of a sort of safety net in the fact that, you know, my parents, you know, my parents cared about me and they, I, I had enough of a sort of family support that I didn't get lost entirely. But there are a lot of people who aren't experiencing that, you know, and they experience desperate isolation in the world and they experience desperate isolation when they get home and they experience desperate. And, you know, so they don't have any kind of net largely in society. I think society has finally gotten out the idea that like bullying is bad and we should stop bullying and that's bad. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. That is an important step, but that's only one aspect of a much larger problem, which is ignorance, ignoring people is bad. Ignoring people is anathema. You know, marginalizing people is wrong. And once we get around, you know, get our head around the idea that we need to actually bring people into a much more inclusive community, a lot of these other things might disappear. So I'm with you on that. I guess it's just that in the meantime, first of all, the women that are being treated this way are also oftentimes being isolated and marginalized in a different fashion, right? I mean, the fact that they're being, you know, called out like this repeatedly, just like Russ said before, you know, the 150th person who's like, hey, how are you doing? You know, she's going to sort of react in sort of this PTSD way. So they also are experiencing this. And maybe the problem is just everybody doesn't have a community that they should be a part of, you know, like isn't, maybe that's isn't the, answer. the solution to that, just to have people sublimate their desire for human contact and instead just buy more things from the sharper image <laughs> is this because i said that you were opposing the u.s in last week's show <laughs> yeah. the image about it and so you're just like no i shall take the exact opposite you know tack. What, but you know what he's doing right now story literally right now as you're talking he's turning around in one of his antique chairs like blofeld and james bond and he's stroking one of his shamanic masks as he does it like all of it do you expect me to be liberal? No, I expect you to buy. Like that's that's what he's doing. <laughs> oh my! I just think that there are some points of view that are often ignored by the MEP report that maybe should Fair have some advocacy once in a while. Maybe I mean, look, in every and have I mentioned my sponsor? On America, Russ. Like that is exactly what's. I mean, this kind of social isolation and constant chronic dissatisfaction with self and others is exactly like what has been crafted to create a consumer culture so you know so yes you win yes yeah, you job. win this Thank society you. Guberman. <laughs> and i i think i would argue that you know despite the fact that uh what is it 90 percent how many what percentage of the population is on some form of antidepressant some some depressingly high it's not not it's not 90 percent <laughs> isn't it nine out of ten americans 90 percent of americans for their their uh. I think it's more on the order of something like 40, 45 or 40 percent have some kind of medication at some well, point. Clearly, there's a lot of work to be done because that number can be improved upon. <laughs> can get that up. Get a plurality. Bust. Yeah. The if real 99 percent. A majority of Americans to be medicated for things that are not their fault at all. They're doing everything that they should be doing. They're buying cars. They're ignoring their families. They're watching TV. This is <laughs> outrageous. So brutal. Oh, man. So brutal in the, you know, snarkiness is what I mean. So brutal. 
Although I am, I am reminded of what you said last week, where you said that uh, someone was honking outside your window, and your way of addressing this is by shining one of your lasers into their eyes, because you want the city, and I quote, to be deconditioned from uh, honking around your apartment. Mm-hmm. So I think we've seen how things happen. You got an apartment, you lived in Beverly Hills, and you were talking about corruption before, and I think the corruption has flowed into you. So I think this is all part of the overall mix, and... You know, I meant to call you out, by the way, last week. I think I, you know, my interruption quota was full or something, so I decided <laughs> not to. But I meant to call you out for being a New Yorker of all people and backgrounds for making that kind of comment. It's like, oh yeah, that'll really get a New Yorker down. Someone is honking near your apartment. The next thing you <laughs> yes. know, there'll be a cab in the area. Like heaven's. I to know. Betsy. Like for many of my friends, like a honky trafficy atmosphere just like puts them to sleep like a little baby but yeah. <laughs> for me i did not grow up in manhattan i grew up in a nice quiet brooklyn suburban in the wilds of brooklyn New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so i'm actually sensitive to super noisy stuff going on around me and it's a super it's a big trigger for me and arguably my friends have now all think it's the most hilarious thing in the world that like i'll hear someone honking obnoxiously outside and they'll just watch the murder levels rising in me as I like slowly get out of my chair and like look for the laser on the coffee table and like look back towards the outside and then the honking subsides and I guess like reset and like go back and sit down and they just think it's fantastic so now it's interesting I want to interrogate this a little bit so when you're getting loud noises right now, is it a physical like? Do you do you feel pain? Like, is it a pounding headache? Do does you do you get your like? Is your skin get flushed? Does your heart rate increase? Is it just a psychological thing where you're just like, I told you to shut up? Like, I mean, what yeah. what exactly is it? That's I mean, it's it's a, like a like a little subtle kind of megalomania for sure. I mean, it's me. Being, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, what? As I've, as I've described what? it before, I've gotten used to being in a position of authority via all the high-status yes. improv scenes that I yes. do in performance <laughs> context. So, like, the fact that people are outside honking, like, and, hey, I've yeah, how notified, dare they, right? I've how notified drivers that they're doing the wrong thing by flashing my lights, which I choose to do because it makes no noise, or, like, giving a little brief series of honks. But if you're just laying on your horn... You are just completely deaf and oblivious to the world around you, which is probably a community of some kind that is now, you know, subject to your whims that you want to go a little bit faster in your car. And I think at the moment that you take that point of view, like you deserve, you literally deserve deserve a laser in the face. You deserve (laughs) warrants a laser in the face. That is my final Uh. point of view. I, I love that. I love how I love how you're building up always sounds reasonable step by step until all of a sudden you just leap sideways. You're like, you know, if you're around a community and you're, you know, like you're you're obviously just deaf and you're not paying attention to the wants of people around you. And that's why you deserve. And some people might go on to say that's why you deserve censure from society. Russ is like, and that's why you deserve to have your eyeballs burned out of your head by my green laser. And that's where things kind of go off to the left or the right. You know what I mean? Like, that's not really now the we're, order. You know, when we're not comedically. Uh, heightening everything like I shine my laser at their car and it goes into their windshield and they realize something is weird or something is wrong or maybe an assassin is targeting them for some reason <laughs> but rarely is it going to go right into their retina and burn their eyes out that's not and really even cool. what it does that's only once in a while I mean and if it does they deserve it so it's okay <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Ru- you Russ, realize you- that that might cause further agitation that they might respond to by I don't know laying on the 
the horn, right? Like, does this actually oh, work? No, actually nobody lays on the horn. It was really funny. This one night, it was like 3.30 in the morning. I don't know if I told you guys this story. There was a guy uh, across the street at 3.30 in the morning honking and screaming out of his window some incoherent gibberish. And he went around the block and stopped again and did it again. And so I was like, I'm getting a laser. So I got the laser. He was probably just <laughs> yeah. a nice guy, by the way, just trying yeah, just, to just, get Why doesn't really society care for me? Morning. Yeah. Yeah. And so I shined it into his windshield and kind of wiggled it around. And he panicked so hard, he just peeled out of there like he was in a getaway car. It was the best thing ever. It was great. I'm sure that also helped his overall state of mind, and he's less likely now to to be agitated for no reason. Hey. Now that he knows that lasers randomly appear in his car. Look, NIMBY, man, not in my backyard. As long <laughs> as he's not doing his thing on Cochrane and Sixth, he can do it wherever else he wants. I can only control If you so want much to lay on the horn, please proceed to Cochrane and Sixth in Los Angeles. We should have like a honk in where people protest a honk in. from Russ. And he's just like, he would actually make like a death laser to cut off people's hands so they couldn't honk anymore. That'd yeah. be the next step. And then the anarchists would bring the brick and it would all. And he'd be like, hey, this looks like a good time smash. I mean, like, I, I have to say, Russ, do you, when you're doing this, do you actually do you actually put one of your masks on and then sort of mutter to yourself as you're doing it? Because I feel like those um, things go together somehow. That's like my uh, my fail-safe home security system is, like, if somebody ever decides <laughs> to come into the house, I will be shirtless with an oceanic mask on and a Fijian club in my right hand. And like, a laser in the other. Them. Yeah. Oh and I'll be gosh. like, if you're not afraid of this, you're welcome to come further. But like, I suggest... <laughs> You Which you would around. say in exactly that way. <laughs> you, know, you would clearly be dancing in like a back and forth, like yeah, crazy. something resembling yeah. the emu mating dance. Oh, right, exactly. God. Yeah, 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 totally. The best security system ever. Actually, okay, scratch the honking. Someone go break into Russ's apartment. Yes, please do that. Awesome. <laughs> and videotape everything and stand your freaking ground. Woo. Yeah, there you go. Stand your ground. Yeah. Bring a laser yourself. I, I don't even uh, I don't know I, I know that there was this there was this big thing actually about um, airplanes that were landing I want to say it was in maybe JFK but there was someone that had been shining a laser in the cockpit as they were coming down it was this big like thing where they like they sent a bunch of police out I think eventually they caught the person who was doing it um, who because it's obviously you know it's a felony <laughs> um, insofar as it's essentially assault on an airline pilot. Um, to do that. So I don't know, man. I mean, the fact that you're doing it against these guys who are running around at three in the morning in the BH is maybe okay for right oh, now. Yeah, but you yeah, know, no, if you have one of these lasers, do not shine them at helicopters that you will get arrested super fast. <laughs> don't do that. That's yeah. bad. Only pilots, burn out the retinas of drivers. Like, pilots retinas are a little bit more valuable than the average remote <laughs> driving a car. Oh my God. You know what I'm waiting for you to do actually is to do that where there's a dog in the car and so it reflects into the dog's retinas but because dogs have mirrors in the back of their eyes to improve their light it actually reflects back up to you and burns yeah, out your retina. Because this is an episode of Superman 2. Karma. <laughs> just going to say this sounds so superhero. Karma. I'm like, it's karma. This is the entire plot of the next Avengers movie I think. Yeah. <laughs> right exactly. Avengers you know uh, uh, the, the goober soldier. Nobody's getting hurt. It's just Pavlovian things that need to happen on my corner. It's all fine. Don't <laughs> on my corner. <laughs> oh, my I, God, man. You're, you are going to make an armored compound. You're going to be the first one of my friends to have an armored compound. The shaman's pretty clear. is mine, and they will oh. respect it. <laughs> oh, God well, Miss almighty. Rand, are there any other pressing issues that are facing America that you would yes. like to bring? Cripples should not be allowed to reproduce the end. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> 
the more they complain, the less valuable they are to my society. Oh, what's oh. happening, you guys? <laughs> oh, man. Here. What's going on? Well, Story, what's, uh, what's the good word on um, how much po- uh, poker money have you made? Have you now recovered from the big blind change? And have you now... You know, started- yeah, I, um, I actually have been slowing down on the poker a little bit. So I keep copious data and copious track of everything. And um, as you guys know, because I was sharing the spreadsheets with you at some point, And I'm not sure that it adds up to enough. Um, oh, so, yeah, so I'm contemplating a, a possible shift back to some sort of conventional work, possibly. We'll see. I don't know. I'm pursuing my options. But I'm definitely, you know, I'm definitely up. I'm definitely making money. But the clip has um, declined. The other thing that I've that I've been looking at also is that since I won the big tournament that I got the $5,000 for that we talked about in Map Report 128, which you can download at our website, but do not tip us on Bitcoin. <laughs> um, so, yeah, since I won that, I started playing worse, uh, which yep. I've been you know, trying to right the ship. But it's, uh, it's annoying how sort of predictably obvious that was as I look at the graph and I'm like, yeah. Because a lot of psychological things changed in my mind when I won that tournament and none of them were good for my practice of playing. Like, I I decided... So, one thing that changed... And I've only realized this recently because you can only realize things about your life in reflection or when things start to go poorly. But I realized that... So this whole idea of playing poker professionally was going to be an experiment because obviously I didn't know for a fact that I could do this or do it sustainably. And things like health insurance are still like throwing that into question or whatever else. Well, the day I won the tournament, I had won like $3,000 in a month and a half or something uh, playing regularly in New Orleans. And that was definitely like a pretty good rate. And then I won a $5,000 tournament in one shot at one day. So in my mind, which I didn't consciously realize because I would have stemmed the flow, but at that point I was like, okay, I have made it, period, full stop, end <laughs> of discussion. I am now a professional poker player. And, uh, the, you know, just sort of decided that that's what my life was going to look like. And then when things, like when I didn't play as well or I had other sessions, my reaction to that rather than like, okay, well, there's ups and downs and it's still an experiment was like panic, was like, oh, yeah, we my. talked about this, right? Yeah, yeah the, well, the, yeah. there was that, there was that. So the ups and downs were built there anyway, but I think that I had underestimated the extent to which I was like that the panic and there was sort of overreaction because... I was realizing that I had solidified this idea in my mind way more than was warranted at that point mm-hmm. from two, three months of experimenting. So um, so I've been thinking a lot about sort of, you know, how to write that ship and whether it would be good to supplement this with some sort of normal conventional work. So I, I've I been think part of um, part yeah. of this this mental equation that happens when you play poker is as soon as you start winning money. Especially if you have a big tournament win like Story did, then right. the the ordinary take on a given day playing a cash game seems Becomes like small less potatoes yes. compared to what you'd won. And then so your entire scheme of the way that you value money within the context of a poker game changes, which will inevitably loosen up your play because you're like, well, I lost $300, but I just won 5000 so who cares? And so... Like either every time you make a big win, you have to like take a huge step up in stakes so that you're appropriately scared enough by the game to play the most disciplined game that you can which play. Which is a fantastic idea, by the way. Yeah, which is scary <laughs> no, in and of itself. Nothing could go wrong. <laughs> or as many poker pros have had to do, 
there's some point where the idea of money and its like realistic impact on your life has to be completely divorced from what to do with chips in a poker game. And that is a scary, scary transition. And like, well, okay, so I like think professional you're... poker players have to do that. So I think you are on to something, but the last thing that you said, I, I, I disagree with you about that being scary or particularly advanced. I did, I have done that, and I did that a while ago, and I think it is absolutely a prerequisite to playing serious poker that you have to, that the chips have to transform to play cash game. Tournaments are different. Tournaments, I think you can play tournaments regularly and maintain that idea because the denominations on the table are not in money and they are a, there's a fixed cost to the tournament that it's like you've bought in and you can rebuy and I definitely like watched someone in this tournament I cashed in a while back like buy in 12 times and that was a little insane so like you can have costs with tournaments but like tournaments are different but if you're going to play cash game regularly you have to be able to walk in you have to be able to like weigh your options and decide to buy the $6 sandwich instead of the $8 sandwich before you go play, then go play and put down $300 and that money immediately as it becomes chips is transformed into something that is not money, is not real, and you're just playing poker with that and it has no application to $2 differences or anything like that. Because if you if you keep those in there when you're at the table, you're if you're at all a frugal person, you're going to be totally screwed because you're going to be unable to take the risks that are necessary to win poker money. Um, and then as soon as you cash it back out, it has to transmogrify back into money that you are going to value at a dollar for dollar rate. So I think that's important. However, I think your overall insight about the way you think about sessions is exactly bang on, like is exactly correct. That after winning $5,000, like the difference between like, oh, I lost 200 or I won 200 just like did not have the same impact and there was a there was a big shift toward like i'm going for more home run plays because that will be more like the five thousand dollars and if i lose 400 you know there were there were far too many days that i was like oh i lost 300 or i lost 250 or i lost 400 and it's like whatever i just won five thousand which of course is a like classic gambling Mm -hmm. psychopathy (laughs) so you Um, want to recapture the thrill (laughs) is what you're talking about well so that's part of it. it. Part of it is the thrill. Part of it, though, is also, I mean, there's this paradoxical situation, I think, where it's not just the thrill, but you have to be scared and appreciative enough of the opportunity and the situation to make correct valuations. And I haven't, like, I would be a little bit more clear about this if I had totally gotten my mind around exactly what's necessary, but I have some of the pieces. But it's basically, like, you have to... And and the problem is it's totally paradoxical with doing it regularly and becoming a professional, which is part of why I'm thinking about doing it only half the time instead of full-time, because the more it becomes regular and routine the more typical it will be. And there's some benefits to that because you like can be patient, you can play the long game, right, you know right. the odds, you've seen more situations, you've seen more people and how they play. So you're building up all of this data, which would be fabulous if you were a computer. However, you're a human being. <laughs> and so more Nonsense, data... Nonsense, you're a computer. Yeah, more data only goes so far when you're a human being, especially a manic depressive human being. And so 
the more you do it regularly, the more mundane and rote it becomes and the more like all of the results sort of end up flowing together and it gets very hard. So for example, like the first couple of times that I played cash and I had like a $300 win, like that was like winning the lottery at the time, right? And then you win the $5,000 tournament and it's like, and I even remember hitting this point like two weeks afterwards it's like when am I going to like the odds of winning another tournament like when am I going to do that again like I could play for a year and be making like enough to live on and be doing very well but never have that one moment of euphoria and the problem is that gambling is designed to give you feelings of euphoria Um, (laughs) so it's very dangerous, you know, it's like, it's like if I were, you know, had decided to do drugs for the rest of my life and I had just gotten like the perfect high and I was like, well, shoot, now I'm just going to be slogging away with regular highs for however long. And, but that's why you need, I mean, so, which is one of the reasons why you were talking about the, you love tournaments, like you need more tournaments in your life. But the problem is you can't really, is there no way to do that? Like the only way to do it is live casino. There's no online stuff at all. There's no way to do any kind of tournament stuff. I mean, there's some shady tournament stuff that like, you know, Oh, please do shady. Yeah, please do I mean, shady stuff. It could it could get shut down any day, and it's like technically illegal, but lots of people are doing it, and like I don't know, but you know, like that's an avenue, I suppose. Um, please go down Shady Avenue, right? I don't know say. if Shady Avenue is the best method for me, <laughs> especially when if I don't have some sort of day job or other supplement to get me out of the house to begin with, like. Yeah, I'm already down enough of a rabbit hole going and playing poker regularly, like never leaving the house and just being on my computer all the time might be like <laughs> the cement cover on the rabbit hole. <laughs> so, um, so we'll yeah, see. Of, so, a friend I'm, of mine on my yeah. uh, my improv team, um, she uh, he was a professional poker player and he lived in Vegas for years and basically he eked out a living uh, mm-hmm. for a decade and then he just finished like seventh in the world series. So he picked up like 1.2 million or something like that. But well, there, it know. wasn't as if, you know, he was living in the lap of luxury up until that point, even though he was perfectly well skilled enough to make it sure. to the end of the most prestigious tournament in the world. It just, you know, he just had to live that life of uncertainty forever until the big tournament win was big enough to break out of that. Right. And that's the nature of poker and the way payout structures are, are, are built is that it is like a lot of like slow grind, slow descent, big boom. Well, yeah, like six hours of boredom and, five, you know, 30 seconds of terror. Right. Isn't that isn't that one? of the Right. Lines exactly. And that's yeah. and that's and that's one of the reasons that most people are not like the, the only advantage I have over 90 percent of the people I play against. I mean. You know, sure, I I understand hands pretty well and whatever else. But 90% of my advantage is patience. It's just that I will sit there and wait for a better situation and fold a really good situation because I'm waiting for a better situation. But the problem is, like, one of the times I played the other day, like, I had the perfect situation where I had flopped a set against somebody's, you know, cruddy flush draw, and they were really aggressive better, and I'd even moved around the table to sit right behind them to trap for just this situation. And I had moved and waited for two hours for a hand exactly like this and he bet $75 and I went all in but because he's a crazy person he called and he had a flush draw and he hit it on the river because even when you do everything right and set things up for perfect probability the best thing you have in poker is probability and his flush beat my flopped set when any normal sane person would have folded to my all in and instead he got you know $400 instead of me getting $400 so 
you know, that Interesting. happens. That just, yeah, and, and, that's and, just going to happen sometimes. But I, it's funny because I feel like your style, I mean, I know that, that Russ, I would, I mean, you guys could correct me, but my impression has been that Russ played a more, plays a more aggressive style than you do. Yeah. And, and <laughs> right. I mean, and so yeah. my sense was that maybe Russ lives in a sort of fearless land and you don't, but it strikes me that poker for you guys was never about fear it's a you know valuation yes but it's not about like being afraid of the hand and it sounds like we're talking about really is that unless you're afraid you can't play well right i mean i understand valuation but but like fear is the requirement for that to to be able to make i think it's fear so maybe this is something unique about my psychology but i think to take anything seriously i have to be this is i'm actually literally realizing this live your question was very insightful and thought provoking and i am realizing this live on the air my, but, my, my job has been done yeah exactly <laughs> and we can go home tune in next week for the exciting <laughs> he no! doesn't even tell you what the insight was god old man he learned something i have to listen to 131 if we were any good at this we would actually cut there but we won't so so what i'm realizing is that how much of my ability to actually do things and overcome my sort of innate procrastinatory inertia is about fear of failure it's a mm. tremendous uh, because so I never would have written like a single paper. I think I've talked about this maybe even on a map report at, at some point, but I'm sure you guys are familiar with the fact that I never would have turned in a single paper in college on time and probably most of high school if I hadn't actually convinced myself every single time, even though I knew that I was just convincing myself of this and it wasn't true, that if I turned it in even a minute late, I would fail out of college, be like sent home, be kicked out of everything and would live the rest of my life in total abject misery. Yes. And I literally went through this psychological like self-deception process for every single major paper and most major assignments in my entire collegiate career. And it worked, even though I had friends like Russ and Ben Branzel and these other people who were turning in things chronically late. I actually don't know if Russ turned in things late, but I think he did. Yeah, um, and we're sure always... We're always getting extensions from professors, and professors were very accommodating. Sure, extension, take your time. This is college. It's Brandeis. We're easygoing. Who that cares? Was, that was their first and, problem. Andy Terrell did this too. Right. Yeah. I mean, Terrell took it to an extreme fault oh, where he traded. I will gladly give you an A plus thesis <laughs> next year for an A minus upfront when I needed to graduate and actually got away with it. True story. Because but, he didn't have a professor like me who would have been like, right. I'll enjoy reading it and giving you the F you deserve for not having exactly. gotten it. So, regardless, but I I knew this was swirling around all around me. I mean, I was surrounded by world-class slackers, right? And yet, I still convinced <laughs> myself every time that even though I was starting the paper sometimes an hour before, don't don't get me wrong, like I was a like minor Olympic slacker by comparison, but but I still convinced myself I had to do it in time. And it's that fear of failure of that I had to confront to actually get over the inertia of playing the 37th Tetris game or whatever it was that was in front of me and actually get something done. I had to fear failure. And I think there's something to that that like when that flip switched or that switch flipped, <laughs> when that flip yes. switched. Yes. In my mind that now I've won the $5,000 tournament and I'm going to win everything and I'm a professional poker player. There was a certain amount of fear of failure that exited stage right 
And it made, you know, and I can't say concretely, oh, I played all these hands differently, but as a global phenomenon, when I sat down to play poker thereafter, it was missing this, like, if I don't come away with a winning session and do this and make my quota, then I'm not going to be on pace to be a professional poker player, and then I will have to get a day job, and then I will be sad, and then I will give up on this dream, and blah, 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 blah. Right, so so what they needed to do was they needed to give you the award and say, congratulations, you've won $5,000, and then look at you and go, or did you? <laughs> right. right. It's sort of like, the, you know, right. at any point and they could take the money. put the money in your pocket. And you're like, this is mine, right? I and you're and they're like, maybe. This. Is it? Is it yours? <laughs> <laughs> is so what they needed account. to do was was cause your, like, tenuous, gri- your grip on reality to become tenuous, right? Like, they need to make it so they're like, I don't even know if my life is real anymore. You're like, that's right. But now I can play poker like a boss. Like, that's really Right. Like, no, basically. That would be great. That would be great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it also didn't help. Speaking of the trophy, like... It really didn't help that they also gave me a big framed picture of myself, like that picture of me with the chips and the whatever else that you see as the stereotype. Yes. Like this giant framed picture of myself that like I walk by twice a day in the hallway of like, that's me. I'm a professional. You know, like this was really damaging for me. Like instead, I should actually have a picture of me by like a burn barrel, like warming my hands and like with a little label of like, if you don't make quota today, boom. So, well, you could still do that. I think I think you could still do that where you could just put like the burn barrel outside your house at your apartment and right, you just exactly. like go out there every so often. And, you know, people could be like, what are you doing outside? And you're just like, well, it's been a tough winter. They're like, it's no, it's November. <laughs> no, it's been a tough winter. I don't know that. It, but no, actually, story, in New Orleans today, everyone would just come and freaking join me because no one has heat oh in their God. apartment and it's 33 degrees. <laughs> but yeah. So so Russ, do you live on the basis of fear in this way with games? I just want to know. Um, I forget <clears throat> who was quoted as saying this, but yeah, to, to gamble or to live or to pursue things, we have to come to grips with our fear and desire. And these are very base instincts that exist in all of us, and none of us are completely devoid of either of them. So we all have them in some quantity. Um, I play a little bit. Could you be more zen? <laughs> <laughs> if I can take the poker chip from my own hand. Uh, I have heard of this fear and desire you allege. <laughs> I had it expunged from my body decades ago. <laughs> um, I think that the main reason that I play a less risk-averse poker game than story is because uh, my... My anger quotient gets uh, riled faster. <laughs> because you than want his. to shine a laser in their eyes, yes. Yes, and so me shining, metaphorically shining a laser in the eyes of poker players at my table is demonstrating how their bad play will have immediate bad consequences, which is a, which is a terrible poker strategy, by the way. Like, don't ever do that. <laughs> if you just zone in on one guy at the table, it'd be like, you next hand and the cards are not going to agree with you most of the time when you try to do that so it's a terrible idea but arguably uh fuels some of my my less uh this is why you've conservative chosen plays instead of poker as a oh curse. yeah yeah yes. oh boy can i go ape shit on people on stage and i just get rewarded for it like all of the time people are like look at him he's so angry i love it 
It's true. And it, and it ties into what we talked about on a previous MEP report, where when you put the angry dating profile up, it was very attractive to people. And then so you've just been continually rewarded for rage. In oh, a way but that it probably was is not helpful to, to qualify. Like it was it was attractive to like all the wrong sorts of people. Like the one girl that I went well, but that with, also built your anger. So that means you became even more effective as an. Yes, angry person. <laughs> it did. Just built my superpowers. The one date that I took that was directly solicited off of the angriest man on OKCupid profile was, of course, of course, into BDSM. And she wanted me to dominate her and yell at her and tell her how worthless she was. And I was like, oh, oh I see. You think, oh, okay, sorry, I'm not. Oh, I see. You believed my profile. Clearly <laughs> you expected spurious. honesty. Let me explain the laws of the internet. Like, sweetie, unless you can generate a car horn noise like 24 hours a day. Why are you calling me, sweetie? That's what she should do. She's like, you're like going in for a hug, and then all of a sudden she gives the air horn, burnt, like in his side like, of the air. Like, Shut up and I get love in that bed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure retinal burns have entered the BDSM community. I should check with people on that. We should Google that, or really, really not Google that, as the oh, case God. may be. <laughs> Put the um, handcuffs on. You deserve this. <laughs> Everybody knows you deserve this. Say, I'm the laser falcon. I'm the laser falcon. <laughs> and then you get the laser. You like it. You also light it. Uh. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Wow, well, you know what, guys? Like, well, yeah. If we can uh, I mean, that, okay. If we're not going to cut off the cliffhanger, we got to end with that. That's got to be cut <laughs> at that point. Um, well, and if you guys drop. are still interested in listening to the craziness that we are, uh, please continue to listen to us. We appreciate it very much. Check us out at themepreport.com. Please send us uh, an email, but don't no tip us with tips. Bitcoin at no Greg, Russ, no or storymepreport.com. Oh, no. And we will catch you all next week. Uh, I would suggest you go by Russ's apartment right now if you want to see, um, you know, great sexy times. Definitely go by Russ's apartment now and lean on the horn. Do both of those things. Yeah. Say goodbye, everybody. <laughs> no tips. Well, the dingo came around one day. Hi there, Emu. You want to fly? But the Emu was too smart for him. <laughs> Walk right up and kicked him in the shin. He can't fly, but I'm telling you, we can run the pants of a dingo too. Oh, yeah, Well, the last time I saw old man he knew him better da da da. He was chasing a female he knew him better da da da. As he shot past, I heard him say, "She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she can run the pants of a kangaroo." She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she can run the pants of a kangaroo.